Welcome to the Suffering Podcast. Each week, we walk you through how suffering is the way to sustainable success and the path to greatness. We are now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and any other major podcast platform. Please subscribe and like to get the latest episodes as soon as they drop. You can always find our latest episodes at thesufferingpodcast.buzzsprout.com. Please comment. We may even read your comments on future podcasts and even reach out to you for a future guest spot. Like and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search for The Suffering Podcast. Here you'll see links to episodes, updates, and inside information on how to achieve greatness through the joy of suffering. So get ready, sit down, and strap in. We are proud to introduce the Dented Development Project. In conjunction with the Suffering Podcast, the Dented Development Project is a nonprofit 501c3 with a mission. That's to help first responders and their families repair dents caused by suffering. Visit us at DentedDevelopmentProject.com and get involved today. Helping us means that we can take care of those who take care of us. Sit your ass, Sit your down. ass down. Sit your ass Sit your down. 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 Let's talk about the suffering. It's time to start the pain. Sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. And strap in. This is gonna hurt. Gonna hurt. This is gonna hurt. Gonna hurt. Let's talk about the suffering. It's time to start the pain. This is gonna hurt. It's time for the Suffering Podcast. We all need a little relief from time to time. And there's a new product out there that I want you to go check out. It's called Heroes Relief Wine. This wine's gonna benefit four organizations dedicated to relieving the heavy burdens that weigh on our military and first responders' shoulders. These are people who take care of us. It's time we start returning the favor. This wine's gonna benefit Live Free Farm, a veteran-run and owned animal sanctuary dedicated to the healing of invisible scars through animal therapy. 23rd Hour Angels, the healing team is comprised of three beautiful women that rescue military and first responders from the burdens that trauma causes. Dented Development Project and the Suffering Podcast help repair dents caused by suffering in first responders and their families by showing how there is light in the end of the tunnel. So go to oldyorksellers.com and search for Heroes Relief Wine or check our show notes for the link. On a night in July of 2013, very early in the morning, I knelt down. I was lost and broken, and this this felt like the end. Never would I believe that something that was held in my hand that weighed just over one pound could feel so heavy. The cold metal awakened every single nerve in my body. The bright gleam of the nickel plating, it was highly polished, reflected in the light of a nearby lamp. Every curve of the Smith & Wesson Chief Special 38 caliber seemed to speak something and I guess call me home. The world would be better off without me. The immense burden that I put my family under is totally unfair. 
the pain in my heart has to stop and this is the only way the place that engulfed me is so dark it's time I'm ready the cold heavy metal seemed at home as the barrel entered my mouth after recently qualifying I hadn't cleaned my gun so fresh gunpowder soured as it touched my tongue cocking the hammer back into the single action with a very light trigger pull my eyes closed at first I saw nothing I wanted to be delivered a reason just one reason not to do this but nothing came I was alone I was crying I was scared but I was also relieved because it's time and I'm ready my finger found the trigger and lightly moved along the ridges my eyes closed and the room fell dead silent a dull ringing began in my ears followed by a bright light I got lost taken back to the night of July 10th 2013 I hear the call over the radio I see my response route I take my shooting position on the back deck of the residence I feel the percussion of the shooter's gun followed by a blow of gunpowder in my face I feel the wind of the bullet as it flies past my left ear missing by less than a quarter of an inch I'm instantly back I'm on my knees with a gun in my mouth hammer cocked crying my eyes fly open the first words that come from my lips are my children my oldest was three and wouldn't understand my youngest at eight months wouldn't even know who I was my wife would be left alone to suffer police see and participate in awful things with each new event we don a new piece of armor to protect us from ever getting hurt again by that particular traumatic event the armor builds up over time until it's so heavy we can't move we're tired we suffer compassion fatigue you know it took me five years to tell that story something strange happened when I let it out a piece of armor dropped off and I felt better lighter again I shared and more armor dropped I began to take this story to those officers in need of some understanding and eventually I was freed of the armor lighter and stronger from years of carrying that weight that burden that suffering I'm Kevin Donaldson I'm here with Mike Felice on this very special episode of the suffering podcast we're honored and humbled to be at the blue magazine blue camping law enforcement and friends mental health retreat we're at this beautiful farm here with some amazing heroes all gathered together to remove our compassion armor and live again. And sitting down with us right now is the gentleman who I give every piece of respect to in the world because he saved my life. And that's Dr. Eugene Stefanelli. Thanks, Doc, for coming in. You don't know what this means to Mike and I. Thank you. It's a pleasure. It's an honor, actually, to be here. Doc, you are truly a lifesaver. That's what this is all about. We're, we're celebrating life. We're celebrating getting past all these difficult times. But we wouldn't be able to get past these difficult times had it not been for somebody like you in my life. I know for 100% certainty that I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. Sometimes I needed your, your tough Newark ways to get me in line. <laughs> You know, he's, he's one of these goombas from New, Newark and, you know, grew up tough. He speaks to us like we speak to each other, Mike, and, and, and that's and rare. We could, and we could break his balls, which, was, <laughs> which is always a lot of fun. Incessantly, <laughs> incessantly, and he took it all in good stride. I, I did get a little hurt when you start making fun of my Irish heritage. 
I'm married to an Irish woman, you understand? My condolences. <laughs> so, Doc, tell, tell our audience a little bit about yourself. I always had this need, even as a kid, to uh, help people. Uh, that's what got me into trouble with women. I always tried to fix them. <laughs> and uh, that didn't work too good for me. So, I always, I always enjoyed helping people. And I uh, decided that uh, that's what I wanted to do as a career. Initially, I wanted to be a pediatrician, believe it or not. As I got to school and I started the, my bio courses, I said, no, that's uh, not the direction I want to go. <laughs> you know, my grandfather was a doctor, and that's who I was named after. So I was going to try and pursue that whole career. But and when I got to college and started studying the bio, uh, next thing I knew, uh, I got interested in the psychology part of it. So I changed my majors, and that's what I've done. Dissecting brains rather than bodies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Gray matter. Yeah. <laughs> that was back, I guess, that was back in the 60s. I graduated from Villanova in 66. And then, 1866. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we're well, not supposed to tell anybody that. I don't, I don't look it. I mean, I'm pretty good for my age, you know. He was given a blink in CPR. <laughs> <laughs> As you can tell, Mike and I have a lot of experience. Doc's crawled around in our heads frequently, uh, shocked at probably what he's seen, but nevertheless, he's been in there. Well, You're the go-to guy in the state. Unfortunately. I've, speak, I've spoken to so many different officers, and I say, yeah, I was treated by Dr. Eugene Stefanelli. Oh, I know him. He did this, and he did that. And he, I said, yeah, because he's the guy. He understands us. And we're not easy people to understand because we're all type A personalities, or most of us. Yeah, We're thick-headed as hell. We don't like to talk to anybody outside of our realm. When we go to a therapist or a psychologist or a psychiatrist, it's a big step for us. It's usually because we're forced to go. First of all, my success are you fellas, the officers, because they're the ones that are my marketers. I guess one dissatisfied officer is going to tell ten. 10 people. I think that's the thing. If you're dissatisfied, you're going to tell 10. If you're satisfied, you'll tell three. Absolutely. That's really been my success. And the other thing is that the, the PBA has set a precedent for cops coming to talk. They would no, never talk to anybody. They would be afraid, ended up on the rubber gun squad, going for a fit for duty, losing their job. So then they didn't talk to anybody. So what did they do? They drank. That's what they did. That was their self-medication. Been, been there, done that. I, uh, <laughs> after my shooting, the... Uh, workers comp sent me to a couple different doctors whose name we won't <laughs> Mike and I divulge know, now. Mike and I know <laughs> this guy because we both went to the same guy. And it, it's amazing. Number one, he didn't give a shit. Oh, I remember that one. Yeah. <laughs> he, did, he, he didn't give a shit. He had no understanding of what our lives had become because he hadn't been there. Right. You know, we're, Mike and I are able to sit down here and talk about suffering and and talk about the values of suffering is be, the, the reason is because we've been there. I was recently talking, you know, Blue, the Blue Magazine has so graciously invited us to this event. And we're sitting out here in this beautiful open air. And I was talking to Danny Del Valle, who, who has just been so great to us. And I was telling him this little story that recently I came around. We're so accustomed, and it's, a, it's in our DNA to run away from suffering. But I'm not necessarily sure that's the right thing to do. I was reading this book many years ago on how to survive things. It was just one of those worthless knowledge I have in my head. And if you're ever in a prairie fire, a prairie fire, your instinct is to run away from it. And it's going to kill you if you do that. 
However, if you run straight towards that prairie fire, you'll get through it and you'll get through the other side. You'll get through a little bit of pain, but you'll get through the other side alive. And that's how I view suffering. Definitely going to Dr. Steps like running into a prairie fire. <laughs> and running away. But it's the quickest route to healing. Doc, you've been one of our greatest cheerleaders over the years, and I know you've listened to a couple of our shows, and I'm very egotistical, so I always like to hear what people think about me. I don't really care what they think about Mike. There's varied opinions on me. I really don't care. In all honesty, I would love to hear your thoughts as being, in reality, the genesis of this show. When we, and we're going to get into you know, Doc's group of dented misfits and how this genesis of this podcast came about was because of group therapy that you ran. So I'd like to hear what your thoughts are on our continuation of that group therapy. Uh, well, you know, I, that, was, that was a very, very special group, actually. Uh, it was very homogeneous, if I can say Don't you that. call me that. <laughs> and, I like women. Yeah, use small words. Um, you know, we had a group of people. At one point, that group was up to like 14 people, if you yeah. remember, initially. And then we used to uh, even do some FaceTime with a couple of people who uh, had moved down south of Georgia. The guy in Georgia, right? Yeah, I will say uh, Andy. I won't say his yeah. last name, but I'll say yeah, Andy. Andy and uh, Jose. You know, it was a very powerful. It was very powerful for a lot of people because they got a lot out of it. Because the only people who understand what you go through when you have post-traumatic stress is somebody that has it or somebody that's trained in it. No one else understands that. So the group came together so that everybody could talk to one another because you, many people were married and in relationships. It was causing problems in the home. Couples have gotten separated, have gotten divorced because of it. People don't understand it. So it was a good opportunity for everybody to talk with one another and share their life stories. And if you remember, every once in a while, it would make everybody repeat why they were there because that's there's no way... To just try and forget that you have PTSD. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's what everybody impossible. thinks. Why don't you just get out? Why don't you just stop being sad? Well, yeah. Yeah. yeah, gee, that's a great idea. Yeah. I've been I've been told snap out of it. Yeah, snap. Yeah, yeah, snap out of it. You know, you can take medication. Medication helps in the amelioration of it, but it doesn't. It doesn't change it. It's still there. You know, that's an injury that stays with you for life. You know, I, I heard a quote not too long ago, which really hit home to me. It said. If you haven't walked in my shoes, don't try to tie my laces. <laughs> I've seen that. And I said, you know, that. I mean, that's perfect. When, when, when I first went through my shooting, people would come up to me and say, oh, I know what you're going through. You, oh, you know. don't know what I'm going through. You have no clue what I'm going through. Like we said, when I started going to this workers' comp doctor, he's like, oh, I, you know, I feel your pain. No, you don't. No, you don't. You don't know. It, it didn't turn me around until I went to you. And I knew that you actually felt our pain and you actually cared. Well, I have PTSD. <laughs> uh, and I, and I've, I've been in several situations which has uh, exacerbated that. Uh, when I was five years old, I ran across the street and got run over by a car. I was dragged uh, about a hundred feet or so. And then there were other situations in my life uh, that put me in a place where uh, they were pretty life-threatening. So... Woodstock. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so Doc, 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 Doc has been to Woodstock. He in his office is the ticket. So he's the gun-loving, cop-treating Woodstock hippie. It's an amazing. He's an amazing man, and he's 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 in all honesty, he's a Renaissance man because he's a little bit of everything, and that's why we love him. But, but you know, I, I think his real PTSD 
He's dealing with us. No, being a Jet fan. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, that's a serious trauma. Actually, I'm going Sunday. I hope they can beat the Patriots. <laughs> well, now, now they might be able to. When we were going through the group therapy, and when I first started going in there, I remember walking in there going, oh, man, I'm going to have to sit around talking about my feelings. This is going to suck. And I went in there, and I was very quiet, and it just took some time, took a couple sessions. But then what ha- there was this weird thing that started happening. One of the guys says, hey, let's, let's go out and get something to eat. At this time, after my, after my shooting, I wasn't going out. I didn't want to go out to any place where there was more than five people. I was afraid of crowds. And then we went out to eat. And it was the weirdest thing because all of a sudden, everybody's back to normal. We're joking around. We're having a good time. There's no fear of anything. And that's that bond that was created. And, you know, over the years, people funneled in, people funneled out until the one day I see this guy sitting next to me. Yeah, I was going to say, your, your first experience was bad. My first experience at group, I walked in and the first person I saw was you. <laughs> I remember the look. I say this more often than not. I remember the look on Mike's face and I go, you, my friend, are about to go on a wild ride. <laughs> that was only a couple months after my shooting. I mean, I haven't even, I hadn't been cleared by the grand jury or anything like that. That's where all the stress was coming from, right? You got that right. Doc, you've seen some ugliness in your practice. I mean some true ugliness. If you could pick out one of those stories that you would say is this is, this is some real suffering, do you think you have one? I've got a book full of them. <laughs> there were a couple. So let's take this one. Without have, mentioning any names, I don't no, want, no. I don't I want any an, confidentiality. I have an officer who had an alcohol problem. Big surprise. Uh, and he was in an inner city department. Sent him to rehab, rat rehabbed him. He was doing really well. The city, for some reason, uh, wanted to get rid of him. And uh, he was a good cop. I sent him to a colleague who agreed with me. Okay, he was fine. He could go return to work. He did what he had to do. He's been, he's been working the program. We didn't see anything. We sent our letters. The department still rejected the fact that he could, could come back. So we had a third doctor. Another friend of ours. Same thing. So lo and behold... Listen, Doc, before I want to stop you one thing. Friend of ours. Is that like a Newark thing? Friend of ours, friend of mine? Yes. Yeah, forget about it type <laughs> of thing? Yeah, it's sort of. You're Italian, so I have to, I have to ask. Sicilian. Let's get it right. Ah, okay. Sicilian. I love their pies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they send him to this incompetent therapist. So what happens is the department says... No, can't come back. We don't care. You have three doctors. Send them to the. They send them to this other doctor, who happens to say, "Oh no, he's unfit to return to work." Oh, see, without even saying a word, I already know who the doctor is. Okay. Next thing is that he goes to the department. They just totally rebuke everything that he's talked about. Every everything anybody has said. So now I'm worried about him because. He's still not emotionally sound, you know. He's still some. He still has the stress, and he had. He had some PTSD. They decide that they're going now. This I talked to him on a Sunday, after he had gone to the department on a Friday, and he was doing well. And his best friend, he was talking to his best friend, and everything was fine. On Monday, they had a hearing, but they never called him in, and they fired him. So he, he, he could, just couldn't take it anymore. That night, he ate a bottle of pills. He died. 
that was a that was a, that was a life that should have never been lost, and and I blame everything on the department because of the way they treated him, and that's not unusual today. Unfortunately, when I talk to my police officers, I ask them what their biggest problem is, and they tell me the administration, and then I ask them, well, what's the second biggest problem you deal with? They say, well, the judicial system. The the job comes with its own separate dangers. I, I, I recently heard a statistic that the average human being experiences one, maybe two critical incidents in their entire life. Police officers in an average 20-year career see 800, an average of 800 critical incidents. I don't care how strong you are, that's going to screw with you a little bit. So you have that built into the job, and that's the job we took. That I understand. Add on top of that the added stress and pressure of an administration who totally forgot what it's like to be a street cop, don't care about you, their motivations are almost strictly political, and it's disgusting. And they wonder why police, on top of all this, this the, the critical incidents that they see and the trauma that they experience, now they got a, a, another wrinkle in order to, to guard themselves against? No, no wonder police suicide is through the roof. So it's it's higher than the national average. Well, now you know why. There's two factors in there. If you break your arm, you go you go to a physician, get your arm fixed. Nobody looks at you any different. Mm-hmm. If your brain is broken and you go to therapy, you don't tell anybody. As a matter of fact, if you get a, if you get an injury on a, on a certain job that you do, you'd be applauded. You get a you get a medal. Right. <laughs> you get a medal, yeah, you but do. you have 800 critical inc- incidents throughout a 20-year career. Your brain's broken. I hate to tell you, even the strongest person's going to break their brain on that one. Yet if you go try to get help to fix that brain, you're weak. Give me your gun. This is insanity. Well, that's why I back up to what the PBA did. The PBA was the first to hire a doctor. They never had a doctor. 25, more, more than 25, probably around 25 years ago, I was introduced to Tony Wieners, who was the past president. At that point in time, I went, to, you know, I went to work with a suit on. Most of the people I saw were were females because they went came to therapy. Men were few and far between, oh, or maybe a, maybe did some relationship work. Uh, thing, you know, things today are different. We have to make it different. Absolutely. Did Absolutely. you wear a suit for the women? I wore a suit and tie everywhere. How come okay. we didn't get a suit and tie? Yeah. Because there were no women in, in our group. If I walked into the room with a suit and tie on, no cop would ever fucking want to But talk half to the me. time, Doc, I, I had to tell you to put pants on. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm only kidding you. <laughs> Who's this stuffy prick? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's part of Doc's beauty. Look. Doc has a way of bringing you down. It, I don't... I, I don't know whether you play down to our level or we bring you down to our level. <laughs> That's what happened. Which one is it? <laughs> you brought me down to your level. <laughs> we, brought, we, you, we brought you down. But I was already halfway there. You know, I mean, I hung on a street corner in Newark as a kid. So, you know, that's when cops were respected. Your parents taught you that cops were your parents on the street. So you, you respected them like you did your parents. Right. And it was yes, sir, no, sir. You know, and that's the way it was. When they would come by, the, you know, by our corner... They would stop shooting the shit with us, you know? If we were in the playground playing basketball or stickball, they would stop. It's community policing before community policing. Absolutely. They came in with all their full equipment on to play basketball and stickball. It was was different. In the summers, they used to come by because we used to always turn the fire hydrant on. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and they would drive by and we used to shoot their car with the friggin' water. You know what I mean? Uh, every, and then every once in a while, somehow they got these, they used to get this sprinkler head. And they would come by and throw it to us and we'd put it on the hydrant. And then we, we, would, we would wait for them to come back and then we would give it back to them. And then they'd give it back to us the next time. But that's real police work. Yeah. Like that's... That's every bit as valuable as going out and catching bad guys. It's yeah. interacting with your community. Yes, yeah, and, absolutely. And I think we lost a lot of that. You most certainly these days. did. My mother used to make sandwiches. You know, in Newark, they used to, they got the old key, key box. They used to, when they did their tours, they walked. Everybody walked around in those days. Not like, uh, you know, they walked the beat. And then, the, in, in, so my, my mother used to make sandwiches and bring them out. In, this, in the winter when it was cold, she would make coffee and bring it to them. Po' boys? <laughs> po' boy sandwiches? <laughs> Get that po' boy a sandwich, yeah. It's a, there's, there's one restaurant in Jersey still makes po' boys. So it's, it was a different world. Do you, how much influence did you, growing up, seeing that type of interaction with the police, played into your practice? Well, a lot of it, because I, I respected police officers. You know, we, th- we thought we were tough guys. When it came to the cops, it was yes, sir, no, sir. I mean, that's the way it was. And, uh, we, you know, we, had, we established relationships with them. I got one question for you yeah. as, it, as it pertains to Newark. What role do you play in that new HBO series, The Many Saints in Newark? <laughs> I can't tell you. Because that <laughs> statute of limitations is over. Now, so no, I was just a consultant. <laughs> <laughs> the Don. Don Stefanelli. So, Don Eugene. Uh, I remember, you know, across the street from us was a restaurant lounge. And back in the 50s, I was in first grade in 1948, okay? <laughs> so that'll tell you where I was. You the were, war was still on. You were in first grade in 48, 49, 50, 51. <laughs> you said you would never say that. Now, come on. But it seems like a great place to grow up, though. It was. It was. And, we, you know, there was the guys across the street. We all aspired to be them. Were know? they the wise guys? Yeah. There was old mafia. Old, yeah. There were the old Sicilians in those days. They weren't. They dressed in suits. They didn't act like tough guys. You know, they were. They kept a very low profile. Even their soldiers kept kept a low profile in those days. They were not like the, the wannabe wise guys today. Um, one of one of them said to me once. You know, he said, "You're going to college, right?" I said, "Yeah, I'm going to college." He said, "The most dangerous person is a wise guy, street guy, who has an education." Oh yeah, <laughs> that's no joke. And, and really, that's that's really been my success in work with police officers. Well, I say that all the time, too. The best cops are the street guys. I of don't course. want a book smart cop. Really? I want someone who towed the line yeah. of, of right and wrong. It's one of the, it's one of, as much as I'm a big believer in police promotion through testing, it's one of the downfalls of police promotion through, through testing. No, I, I'm not, a, I'm a, I don't believe in testing. The, the, the problem with my department, here, here's the other side to that. My department did not test. If you swallowed from the administration, then you got promoted. And that was the only way you got promoted. I made it to lieutenant. I know. That's why your knees are all bruised. He's got to go in for a double knee ta- kneecap replacement. Oh, wait. Who needs hip surgery? You weren't doing it the right way. I was using whole body stuff. Listen, I'm... If I'm going to do something, it's 110%. I can't imagine what it's like for people who deal with first responders or and, and deal with tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. Because Mike and I, we, we've talked this past week about you coming in here, and there's been times when we've listened to some the other end of the table, some awful, awful stories. By the time we get out, and we do an hour, 
we do maybe two hours before recording two shows, and we're done. And we're so exhausted, we, we don't know what to do. It's like the longest ride home, the longest, most tiring ride home after hearing people's stories. How many people do you see a day and hear all of their stories? Like I said in the beginning, compassion fatigue. Uh, I've been averaging between 10 and 12. That's insanity. Tell me about it. That's insanity. But I, I, take, I try to take off Fridays to run errands and things. But it, it's, it's just got a weigh on you. It does. It, it, it's, it has now become a, it's now become a problem because I can't not do that. Well, you're, you're that's called, the, that's you're called out to pretty much every police-involved shooting, correct? Pretty much. And every blue suicide? Usually. You know, you go have the briefings with the departments we and do, all that? We do. Yeah. But we're gonna we're kind of changing that, you know. I have I have four delegates I go with, that are part of my team. You know, we have a peer assistance response team with critical for critical incidents and things like that. However, it's tough because they're all they're spread all over. So it's it's hard to go to every one of them. What has happened now is the departments call and say we want you. We really don't want the other group. Uh, Make yourself irreplaceable, and you can never get promoted. Yeah. That's the problem right yeah. there. It's got to be tough when you go to these departments or you go to a blue suicide incident and have to look this look at the survivors. You, I don't know if you get too heavily involved with their family. Uh, usually. Usually. Look at their family. Look at their eyes. The kids. There's loss. What I said in the beginning about my travel down that dark path, my children and my wife are the only thing that snapped me out of it for that briefest of moment. Because prior to that, none of that was in my mind. It was dark. It was just black. And then now you have to look at the remnants of their decision. Because I always say it's never okay for you to push your suffering onto somebody else. And that's not the intention of, some, of, of somebody who, who we lose to blue suicide. That's not their intention. They're just not thinking clearly. Because if they were to think about the consequences of their actions, I'm sure they wouldn't do it. I'm positive they wouldn't do mm -hmm. it. Because when suicide is a self, it's an act totally unto yourself. You're not looking to hurt anybody. A lot of times guys will go off into the woods, or girls, whoever does it, go off into the woods so nobody, so their kids can't find their body. But now look at what happens with what's left. How do you look somebody in the eye, Doc, and say, like, what do you say to somebody who just lost the love of their life? You can't say everything is going to be okay because you it's know not. it's not. It's not. You know, gonna, so, like you said, someone breaks around this. Oh, yeah, you'll be okay. You know, wear a cast for a couple weeks. It's a weeks. process. It's a process over time. Grieving is important when that situation happens. At, at that point, people are, I mean, rationally, they're, they're not thinking about really any positives. There's nothing positive about it. Let me give you an, I'll, I'll tell you a story I have. I got a suffering story for you. I had a corrections officer who came to see me. Uh, God, I don't know, probably 10, 12 years ago. He hung himself, uh, hung himself in his, in the shed out backyard, uh, left a note. He handcuffed his hands behind his back when he did it. That's commitment. Okay. His wife happened to be a nurse's aide, came home early. She wasn't feeling well. Saw a note on the table, goes out to the shed. He's blue, really can't get a strong pulse, cuts him down, starts to give him CPR, calls 911. They get there, they bring him back. So now I got to talk to this guy for a number of months. 
it was somewhat educational to understand what what what, where, what it, where his head was. He was in a black room with no doors and no windows. All he did all he did was have this pain in his head, this emotional stress that he could not take his life any longer dealing with all these voices and other things that were in his what is in his head. And we talk about it all the time too. The other feeling is is when you're going through this, you feel like you're a burden to your family. Absolutely. You know, when I went through my dark period, I never contemplated suicide because I'm too much of a pussy to do it. But I did think of ways if if I was going to commit suicide, how would I do it? You know, and I went to bed every night saying, you know what? Because I used to be like the life of the party guy. Always enjoyed my life to the fullest. Always had fun. After my shooting, I felt like I, w- I was bringing everybody down. I wasn't the life of a party anymore. I wasn't. I wasn't who I was. You were depressed, and I, I didn't want to be. I didn't want to be around people. So now, instead of going and being the life of the party, people didn't want to be around me because I was bringing the whole party down. That gentleman there, that's an interesting case study. A lot of times, when somebody attempts suicide, very often it's a cry for help. They're looking for somebody to stop them. They don't want to do it, but they have no other choice. This person didn't seem like that happened. It's, it was by happenstance that he was able to be saved and brought back to life. So you really get a look into the mind of somebody who is really committed on doing that. Mm-hmm. That's a that's an interesting case study. Very. They should have done a you should have done a paper on that. You know, they <laughs> should do a paper on a lot of people who's got the time. <laughs> You're seeing 12 people a day, you don't have time. To- you mean like who's got the time to start a podcast when they're coaching football and they're married and they got a full-time job? You know, who's got that? You're younger and have more energy than the guy 77 years old, okay? Listen, I'm younger than you, which that's it's all relative. I'm younger than both of you, but that's relative. I think combined, we might be younger than Doc. <laughs> Close. That gentleman who you were speaking with, you, you brought him in. You got him to talk. Yeah. It's humiliating for an officer to go in there and talk about that. Yeah, I I tried to kill myself. Yeah, that it's humiliating. I still have a gun that I took from a cop about four years ago, five years ago. Is it a nice gun? Is that why you kept it? It's an old uh, Belgium thirty-two, you know, from the war. From World War Two? Yeah. Bet you that uh, if it's if it's the one I'm thinking of, it was an officer's gun. Uh, might have been. Yeah. Speaking of guns. I tested you once to see if you had chronic post-traumatic stress. Oh, I know it. Do you remember that? Since I am here and I'm giving you permission to talk about this and it's not, you know, patient privilege. So to this day, I believe I've spoken about this on an earlier episode. I don't like guns. I can't hold a gun. It's Let me back up. I can hold a gun. I feel very uncomfortable doing it. I prefer not to. Mm-hmm. Uh, my kids, I don't allow them to get Nerf guns or any play guns like this because I don't. If it gets pointed at me, I start going into a, uh, a remember panic, that panic <laughs> mode. We all remember that one. <laughs> yeah. So what Doc does to me, I guess. Well, Doc, I'm going to let you tell it from your perspective here. Well, I brought in an Army 45, 1911, with a Bakelite handle. <laughs> yep, I remember it. Which, which I've done before to other people, <laughs> but that. That kind of certifies what I believe to be true post-traumatic stress. As soon as I showed you that gun, you just turned your head and you kind of got a pretty emotional, I would think. My personal gun is a Smith & Wesson 38. I still have it, but I don't handle it. I don't 
do the things you're supposed to do when you own a gun. I know you're supposed to train with it and things like that. But that gun is 19 ounces. I know that off the top of my head. In my hand, that gun feels like it weighs 50 pounds. That 45 that you handed me, it, it might as well have weighed a ton. I, it's, it's a very difficult thing to explain. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I'm one of the, I hope I'm one of the few officers, I know I'm not, who has tasted the gunpowder on the end of a barrel. The permanency of that will scare the shit out of anybody. You've said this to me numerous times, and it's one of my mantras now. It is a permanent solution to a temporary condition. Correct. I'm going to break one myth about blue suicide here because we're at this this event, and this event is Blue Magazine does awesome. I mean, they dedicate this whole event to the the prevention of blue suicide. And I see the food coming out, so you got to hurry up. <laughs> <laughs> the world is not better off without you. Whoever says that is so full of shit. I often give out my phone number, my email address. Sometimes that backfires on me. I'm going to be honest with you. But if anybody is ever having any thoughts like that, email me at kdonaldson at sufferingpodcast.com. That's my personal email. Come talk to me. I'll give you my phone number. We'll talk on the phone. Because I would rather listen to your problems than attend your funeral. I don't do, I don't do police funerals. Right. It's, just, it's, it's too difficult for me. Because I know I was almost there. Right. I know I was almost there. That's understandable. But I've taken that pain and that suffering, and Mike is the same way, and we've rearranged it. We've thrown it back out into the world because my ultimate goal now, and I, as much as I loved police work, I feel that this is now my purpose, my life's work, mm-hmm. doing things like this, helping one person at a time. And but I, in reality, we're helping one person, but people that are listening to it know that someone else is going through what they're going through also. And so I, we're helping one person... By, by being on here, but the listeners who listen to that, I think, I mean, you could attest to this. We've been approached by a bunch of people and said, you know, thank you for your podcast. You know, it's really helping out. Well, I think it does. I think I think it's it's actually, in a, in a, in a way, therapeutic for a lot of people. It's therapeutic for both of us, I'll tell you for, that. For Absolutely. Well, it's the same yeah. thing with a therapist. Therapist, it's therapeutic for a therapist to do therapy. Have you ever had <laughs> one of those, not that you're looking for accolades, but if you, you treat somebody over time and you see something and you kind of you kind of turn around when nobody's looking and go, yeah, you know what? I had a part in that. I did that. I helped him with that. And it's just a good feeling. I know Mike and I have had that. We've talked off air about certain wins that we've had and things that just make us feel good. And it helps you keep going. Have you ever had something like that? Besides us, we I was already know. Say, he's, he's got two of them sitting right in front we, of him. We right already now. know how you're, we, we, we have to be your biggest success story. And if you're not, I will edit this <laughs> thing to make it sound like you said it was us. So go ahead, say whatever you're going to say. <laughs> it's it's kind of uncomfortable. I get accolades. I get I, have, I get texts from cops. You know, that, that that I don't even I don't see anymore. Group texts? Uh, no. <laughs> well, those are censored, the group texts I get from you guys. but uh, I, I love how Doc know. responds back like a yeah. week later. You're disgusting. <laughs> yeah, I deleted the text. Like, cause I, it, once I read those group texts, I just delete them right away. And Doc will text us about it like a week later. 
I don't read them every day. So you got you guys have issues. So I, that's why we're coming to see you, Doc. I don't have freaking time to read all this shit, all the text messages. I mean, enough is enough between that and emails, you know. I don't need to see some of those pictures. I my my wife sometimes picks up my phone if it's ringing. You know what I mean? And then she thinks it's me. It's not me. You ask us to send you those. Oh yeah. <laughs> At this point in my life, it doesn't do anything for me. You understand? Getting back to the Denton Misfits, Doc got us involved, as we spoke about earlier, Doc got us involved in this group therapy here. And it's probably some of the sickest, most demented individuals you'll ever see. Well, that's nice. I take offense at that. No, I I I don't think that's the way to define it. It's the way we deal with stress, it's the day through humor. And that humor is very dark. Right. We talk about dark humor all the time. Right. If anybody from the outside were to see that, they'd say, yeah, you're disturbed. You're, <laughs> you're, there's something wrong with you. Dented. But you have to understand something. When you deal with trauma after trauma after trauma, you learn to put that armor on so it doesn't hurt you by laughing at it. Mm-hmm. You know, police stress is cumulative over time. Correct. Right? Keep filling this cup. It's going to spill over. And that's what happens. So it's that one thing that breaks the camel's that breaks the camel's back. You know, it's that one straw. That's why cops fall into alcohol too, because you know that, that beer it. starts filling over. You got to keep drinking it. Drunks don't become cops. Cops, cops become, become drunks, drunks because they self-medicate. Because they would never. That's why I go back to saying what I said before. The PBA set a precedent. They hired a doctor because we. I always talked with Tony Wieners when I first met him about the needs of a, an officer. They need to be able to talk to somebody and not and you know worry about ending up on losing their job because they said something that wasn't right. It's that stigma. Absolutely. So we, we've really removed that because guys will come and talk now, as you well know. So do you think that the stigma is slowly going away? Or, or is it still there to some extent? In New Jersey? Yeah. I can't speak for the other states, but I know what goes on in New Jersey. Yeah. You know, even have, not even have Newark now getting involved. That's the way it should be. Yeah. You know, none of us are as strong as all of us. No. And if we all band together and say that this is an injury, no different than an ankle injury, this is something that we need to attack as a group. There's been so many individuals coming up. You know, Blue Magazine's one of them. So many individuals coming up and stepping forward and saying, this stuff has got to stop. But it's not until all of us get together. I agree. So what else can we do to further erase that stigma? Well, first of all, let me, let me tell you where, the prob- where there's a problem. The problem exists when an officer is involved in a work-related critical incident, okay? It becomes a workman's comp case. That's a problem, and you both know that that's a problem <laughs> because they send you to doctors who don't know anything about a cop, and the cop is going to come in there and interview you, and as soon as he finds out that you don't know shit, you're dead. You're dead in the water, and so they don't get anything out of it. That's the problem. They don't, they don't deal with cops. They don't deal with addictions. They don't deal with, with uh, PTSD. And they're going to take care of these officers. Well, these officers, they don't, they don't get anything out of it. My workers' comp doctor said you're, you're a police officer. Didn't you expect to get shot at? There you go. Well, I remember who that was. Yes, sir. Uh, that well, was Dr. Well, C. Uh, uh, <laughs> let's just say the same guy, uh, I, I told him, I said, I'm not going back to work until grand jury is over because how do i go back and possibly face the same situation mm-hmm. if i hesitate and get killed fuck it i'm not here anymore i'm dead right. if i hesitate and my partner gets shot or killed 
I'm not going to ring a doorbell because I hesitated and say, you know, daddy's dead because I fucked up. I agree. So that whole session, he had no clue what grand jury was all about. The whole session we talked about grand jury. Every cop that's gone to him has come back and complained to me. Some people should never be in that profession. They well, have, or they shouldn't be working with cops, period. Well, yeah, that's... But They're even, a different take away the Take away the cop thing. Even take away the cop thing. You can't say inflammatory statements when somebody's in a dark place like that. It just... It, you're going to get your ass kicked, but number one... It's fuel on the fire, too. Right. We need to start getting people such as yourself in the right positions. I know you're, you're, in, you're in a very good position. You're very tied in with the PBA. You're doing what, everything you're supposed to do. But we need more people like you who understand us. Mm-hmm. In a little bit, we're going to be speaking with Anna Paez, who, who's uh, also heavily involved in dealing with uh, our kind. Right. I said because we're a different <clears throat> kind all together. Yeah. These are the people we need to get, people who are very well-versed. If you have something with wrong with your foot, you're going to go to a foot specialist. If you have something wrong with your ear, you're going to go to an ear specialist, and vice, you know, and so on and so forth. Cops with mental issues, there, there should be a, a two-year degree on just that mm-hmm. because you're dealing with certain types of individuals. And, Doc, I can't thank you enough for what you've done for me personally and what you've done for everybody else. Yeah. I thank my officers who are out there risking their lives every day, especially now with COVID going on. They don't have, you know, you have to worry about people wanting to hurt cops. Got to worry about getting COVID, not so much for themselves, uh, if, but to bring it home to their family. Right. You know, that's where the worry is. So that's another stress that they have to deal with today. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it, just, it, just keeps, it just keeps multiplying one thing after another. I, I think you're going to see down the road, you're going to see a lot of guys try to pension out because of COVID. Well, there are guys pensioning out on the 20 because they're inner city cops and they know that they're the guys that are likely to end up getting indicted for doing their job. Yeah, I mean, we, we talked about this, the, the big city cops, and, and we know a few of them that were in group with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, one guy in particular was, I think they gave him like two days off and said, you better get back to work or you're going to fire. Three days yeah, off. Yeah, three days. And then if you complain, they'll send you for a fit for duty. If you, if you, if you fail that fit for duty, they fire you. Yeah. Well, what the fuck? How do you do that? Yeah. How do you do that to a guy who's ris- he's risking his life every day, especially in the inner city? And adding more stress to post-traumatic stress. Absolutely. Well, even, it exacerbates know, his Even the, this guy at, at the meeting told us he wasn't ready to go back to work. He said he had such anger built up in him, he'd go on a motor vehicle stop and just start ripping people out of the car for no reason. Mm-hmm. Now you're going to get yourself jammed up if you don't get the proper help that you need. Well, we were able to get him retired. Actually, everybody in that group was retired. And that's the worst thing in the, the worst thing in the world that any look. You you tell me if this isn't the truth. Every cop tells me the worst. Who's been involved in a shooting? The worst fucking thing I can do is end up in another shooting. I don't want to go back to work. I don't want to do this. I don't want to shoot anybody. It's misinformation. Yeah, it's, it mis- it's misinformation. And that's, and that's a big problem. It's clickbait on the internet. It sells newspapers and Absolutely. it gets ratings on on news. Yeah, and it's and it's fake news. You know, and I it's have just, to go with Trump on that one. All it's all fake news. It's just something that needs to be. But we're doing it slowly but surely. We're doing it. Like I said, none of us are as strong as all of us. But in your experience, Doc, and you're you're dealing with depression and dealing with signs of you've dealt with blue suicide so much. Are there certain characteristics that you can point out that people out there can just look for and say hey you know what let's 
Well, there are, you know, there are some signs. Uh, people start stocking up on food at home. If they live to have a family, they start selling things, start looking to uh, accumulate money for the rest of their family. Trying to prepare, because again, they don't want to push that suffering yeah. off on anybody else. No, they don't. And, you know, they have a tendency to, uh, they, they distance themselves social from people. Social distance. A lot of social distancing. And uh, I did social distancing way before COVID. And then, <laughs> you, then you know what? They start medicating, self-medicating heavy. I guess if your emotions are a little bit dull, it's easier to do. I, I, can, I can attest to that personally. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I can't tell you that in my uh, younger days, before I became a shrink, uh, <laughs> I had suicidal thoughts myself. I had the gun in my hand. It's scary to think that... Probably 50 years ago, but... That's it's scary it to think that one one move, and think about the butterfly effect of you doing uh, that. Yeah. Number one, we would have never met, which would have been a tragedy in my life. It really, it really would. It would have been a tragedy because I consider you just... You're one of the angels in my life who's who's got me through everything. Doc, we're coming to the end of this thing, and you've seen so much go on in your private practice and your years of dealing with law enforcement. What do you think all this suffering that you have seen has taught you? That I'm thankful where I am in life. Makes me feel good about where I am because when I see all these other people suffering, I get emotional about that. I'll be honest. You know, I've cried many times for cops, especially those that have committed suicide that I knew. That officer that I told you about that committed suicide, the alcoholic, his buddy, his best friend, came to see me because he was having trouble. And he and I sat there and cried about the death of his, of his, of his buddy because these people are important to me. It becomes family. Absolutely. You know, like, like our group. I, I consider everybody in our group family. Absolutely. I feel very close to that, everybody in my group. If something happens to them, I'm concerned. Right. You know? Well, there was one in particular that you had concerns over, and I reached out to them personally and, and yeah. talked to them. I, I hope it did something for him. It did something for me because it realized that, you know, I, I, I got so many different things going on. I... I it's not that I neglect, it's just I'm, I'm trying to do too many things at once. Well, that's not your primary job here. <laughs> to look out for my fellow man, yes it is. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's meritorious on your part, but you know what? We can't help everybody, and I've learned that. I, I always thought you could help everybody. You can't help everybody. There's only so many you can help. If I can just save one, that's all I want to do. Mm-hmm. Well, Doc, I, I thank you so much for coming in, and I know when the day comes where it's time for you to shuffle off this mortal coil, I know you'll be able to meet your maker with your head held high, knowing that you did everything you possibly can in this uh, life. That, that's the one good thing about what I do, is that I know that my legacy will be positive, so I'm making up for all the negative in my life for the past. <laughs> And listen, I, I, you know, we're up here in God's country, you know, and I, I came up and I, I think I saw God and I tried to high five him and just looked at me and turned away you know, he, doesn't, I, I, uh, he doesn't want to have anything to do with me don't either make, don't make the wrong turn and hear banjos <laughs> spirituality to me is extremely important okay you know i say my prayers every night i journal every night because you know i have my addictions i have addictions and i have post-traumatic stress so i need to i need to keep that in check and so i do that i go i believe in going to church every sunday i see it i do it virtually now but uh, I'm a firm believer, in, and I'm a firm believer in prayer, and I think people need to have spirituality. The other thing you need to have is humor. Hmm. 
humor in life is important, man. You know that because even in, in, in treatment, I use I use humor because I think it's very important. Well, anybody even listening to just this podcast today knows the humor that we have between each other. Right. It's just something that we do. I don't want to say to mask our hidden injuries, but it's it's just something that we do to just release ourselves and, and, and get away from what we're feeling for a couple minutes. Feel normal a little bit. Well, Doc, I thank you so much for coming in. This was a really important episode. It's an episode that we all wanted to do for a very long time. I hope you keep fighting a good fight, and I hope you're around for many, many, many years to come. <laughs> well, I've been working with cops uh, for 25 years now. Uh, Tony Wiener's changed my, my career, by the way. You know, I stopped wearing a suit, could wear jeans and a T-shirt to work, and <laughs> the cops responded to me. No, I'm serious. And now with Pat Culligan, he's, he's, I think Pat's doing a great job. I, I think that both he and Mark uh, have done a great job. I think probably this is the best administration you've had. He's always, he's always treated me personally like family. Well, and, you know, he's, and, he, and they're a good team. Yeah. You know, Pat is a bright guy, and he just, uh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy that uh, I work for them, I have to tell you. And uh, they don't, they don't, uh, they don't ever try and uh, micromanage me. They let me do my job. They know I do my job. They know I care. All I have to do is talk to the cops, and they'll tell you. You know, like it calls three thirty in the morning, and I have my wife is great. I just have to keep buying her more jewelry. That's all. <laughs> well, that's going to bring us to the end of this episode <laughs> of the Suffering Podcast, and I want to talk about all the stuff that we learned here. <laughs> we learned that there is light on the other side. We as police officers have to join together and erase the stigma. And most importantly, we are not better off without you. And that's going to do it for this part of this episode of The Suffering Podcast. Please tune in next week for part two of The Suffering of Blue Suicide. I want to thank Dr. Eugene Stefanelli for stopping by with us today. We got much more next week to come. So don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And we will see you next week for part two of The Suffering of Blue Suicide on The Suffering Podcast. Thank you for allowing me to be here.